Back in cinema's infancy, there was no such thing as the director's cut. That's because the director enjoyed complete creative control. That's because very often the director was also the writer, producer, exhibitor, and sometimes even distributor. So there was never any dispute between the creative and commercial aspects of film. Why should there be when the filmmaker was a self-financing entrepreneur, an artist who creates her own materials and exhibits her own paintings in her own gallery? But the truth is, in those halcyon days, film was not considered art. At most, it was regarded as a fad. But gradually, those expectations changed and filmmaking became not just an art, but an industry. Not unlike that of the automobile. And just as Henry Ford's factories were rolling a car off their production lines every 24 seconds, Hollywood studios had so rationalised the means of production that by the end of the 1930s, MGM were releasing a feature film every nine days. But successful as that was, the once unified commercial and artistic instincts had been fractured, with the producer now on one side and the director on the other. Even United Artists, a studio set up in 1919 to ensure the creators maintained control and were rightfully rewarded, was beset with difficulties. Despite their artistic talent and commercial cachet, D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks never realised their cinetopia. Now the division is so deep, if I were to say director's cut, you would assume I meant one thing, while if I were to say producer's cut, it would mean something else entirely. Perhaps no other Hollywood director came to embody the tension between the commercial and the artistic as much as Orson Welles. Welles, a wunderkind who had already taken New York's theatre and then America's radio by storm, was lured to Hollywood in 1939 by a studio that offered him a contract that assured him unprecedented creative control over his own work. Orkeo wanted Welles to write, direct, produce and star in his own films. At first, Welles intended to adapt Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but eventually he had to abandon the project because the technology could not meet his ambitions. So he turned his attention to another project he titled simply American. But there was nothing simple about the vision nor the scope he had for it, and quickly it morphed into a new title, Citizen Kane. But then just as quickly, it all went wrong. Despite being lauded in many quarters, Kane did very little business at the box office, and while nominated for nine Oscars, come the night of the awards, as listeners tuned in on their radios at home, they could hear boos coming from the auditorium every time Wells and his film were mentioned. Clearly, a lot of people in Hollywood regarded the genius as a brash upstart. Undeterred, Wells embarked on another artistically challenging and commercially risky project, The Magnificent Ambersons. The magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. In that town in those days, all the women who wore silk or velvet knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet, and everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage. The only public conveyance was the streetcar. A lady could whistle to it from an upstairs window, and the car would halt at once and wait for her. While she shut the window, put on her hat and coat, went downstairs, found an umbrella, told the girl what to have for dinner, and came forth from the house. Too slow for us nowadays, because the faster we're carried, 
the less time we have to spare. Wells was adapting it from Booth Tarkington's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel about an aristocratic dynasty from America's Midwest, the Amerson Minivers. Their wealth and fortunes winnow away because of weakness and pride, and their failure to embrace the emergence of the Industrial Age. Just as Citizen Kane had charted the rise and fall of a newspaper tycoon, the Amberson's magnificence declined with the arrival of the automobile. In other words, Wells was once more examining the downward slope of the American dream. Despite the story's questionable commercial appeal, Orkeo once again backed Wells, and when they saw the footage, the executives were more than pleased with their decision. But while Kane was filled with dazzling narrative and structural devices, for Amerson's, Wells was seeking a markedly different tone. Where Kane had been decidedly energetic, Amerson's would be decidedly elegiac. He structured the story around a series of arrivals and departures, entrances and exits, ascendancies and descendancies all of which are established in the film's opening section that is dominated by a lengthy ball sequence hosted by the Amerson Minivers in their grand mansion. It is in that sequence that, without ever declaring them, Wells presents the film's themes. Rise and fall, wealth and emptiness, life and death. The Orson Welles who had made Citizen Kane was but a novice who turned out to be a genius. The Magnificent Ambersons is not only the confirmation but also the maturation of that genius. Unlike the production of Citizen Kane, for Ambersons, Wells decided to stay firmly behind the camera, while once again casting members of his Mercury Theatre Company who had starred in Kane. Joseph Cotton, Ray Collins, Erskine Sanford and Agnes Moorhead. In Kane, Moorhead had delivered a three-minute cameo, that of young Charles's mother, Mary. Be careful, Charles. Pull your muffler around your neck, Charles. Kane, I think we shall have to tell him now. Yes. I'll sign those papers now, Mr. Thatcher. But for Ambersons, Wells cast her in the pivotal role of the highly strung spinster aunt, Fanny Miniver. Sometimes you say things that show you have a pretty mean little mind. What upsets you this much? Shut up! I know what you mean. You're trying to insinuate that I'd get your mother to invite Eugene Morgan here on my account. I'm going to move to a hotel. Because he's a widower. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to insinuate that you're setting your cap for him. And getting Mother to help you? Oh! Is that what you mean? Wells' faith in her was justified because Moore's brilliantly pitched performance earned the film one of its four Oscar nominations. The other three went to Wells for producing Stanley Cortez's lush cinematography and the film's lavish production design by Albert D'Agostino. For the younger members of the cast, Tim Holt played the spoiled and arrogant son, George, who falls in love with the sensible and modest debutante, Lucy, played by Anne Baxter. But their relationship is complicated by the fact that before either of them were born, George's mother Isabel had spurned the advances of Lucy's father, Eugene. One of the reasons was that back then, Eugene had no money. But as the Ambersons' wealth slowly diminished, Eugene's fortunes rose as he invested in the horseless carriage. Come on, Georgie, push! I'm pushing! Push harder! Clearly, Orkeo fully supported Wells' vision. The thing was, though, that now aged 26, Wells' vision was becoming increasingly diverse. He had already conquered theatre, 
the radio and cinema. A new horizon was politics. Kane had been released into theatres in September 1941, and on December the 7th of that year, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, thus giving President Roosevelt the mandate he so desperately wanted to engage against the fascist forces overrunning Europe. And while the two major theatres of conflict were in Europe and the Pacific, the US State Department was concerned that some countries in South America might align themselves with Hitler. Thus, Wells' approach with the idea of heading off to Brazil to create a documentary, all with the aim of creating goodwill between the two countries, and no doubt giving the State Department the perfect cover to do some hard fact-finding. Wells, a long-time liberal and supporter of Roosevelt, was only too keen to support the war effort. And, as he pointed out to the heads of RKO, the documentary would deliver the third and final film of his contract. So, with the editing of The Magnificent Ambersons all but complete, Wells flew south to Rio, and that's when the problem started. Orkeo's test preview of the film proved to be a disaster. As the then head of the studio, George Schaefer, said in the cable he sent to Wells, Never in all my experience in the industry have I taken so much punishment or suffered as much as I did at the Pomona preview. In my 28 years in the business, I've never been present in a theatre where the audience reacted in such a manner. But it wasn't necessarily the picture that was at fault. The test audience Orkeo had secured for Ambersons were teenagers expecting to see a musical comedy, and their skewed response threw the studio into a state of panic. With Wells stuck in Brazil and shocked by the news coming from Los Angeles, and with long-distance phone calls proving unreliable, he was in no position to protect his picture. The version Wells was trying to protect ran for 132 minutes, and from the few informed people within the industry who did see that version, they ranked the achievement alongside Citizen Kane. However, that inside opinion could not dissuade the studio from making drastic cuts, hacking out one third of the running time and bringing it down to 88 minutes. And then to add insult to breach of contract, in Wells' absence, a whole new ending was filmed, adding a coda that defied the tone he had so meticulously paced out in the longer version. Here is Wells speaking in 1982 with Alan Yentob for BBC's Arena series. It was thought by everybody in Hollywood while I was in in um, South America, that uh, it was too downbeat, famous Hollywood word at the time, downbeat. So it was all taken out, but it was the purpose of the movie. Was to see how they all slid downhill, you see, in one way or another, how their relationships, how they turned away from each other and all of that kind of thing. If ever a plot could reflect the fortunes of its own film, it is this one. Just as the Amberson Miniver family tumbled into irrevocable ruin, so too did Wells's film. All throughout its rewrites, reshoots and re-edits, by July 1942, the controlling ownership of Orkeo had changed. George Schaefer, the man who had brought Wells to Hollywood and brokered the unprecedented contract, was replaced by Charles Kerner. And one of the first things Kerner did was terminate Wells's contract and then throw his production staff off the studio lot. In less than 12 months, Wells had gone from Wunderkind to Persona Non Grata. And while he will always be lauded as the genius who made one of the most important films in the history of cinema, the sad truth is that it is the magnificent Ambersons that more accurately defines his career. Wells never recovered his place at Hollywood's table, 
and instead spent the following decades wandering like a troubadour, always ready to regale anyone interested in investing in his tales and tunes. And while he still managed to deliver several masterworks, Othello, Touch of Evil, Chimes at Midnight, F for Fake, he never again enjoyed the financial backing Orkeo had given him. Here is Wells once more, again from the same Yantob interview. There's no scene in a hospital, nothing like that ever happened in the story. And the great long scene, which was the key long scene at the end, which was Aggie Moorhead in a, in a third-rate lodging house near where there were, an elevator was passing and the, some, they're playing a comic record, Two Black Crows, on a gramophone, some old people in the back who are playing cards and Joe Cotton has come to see how she is. And that was a, the best scene in the picture. That was what the picture was about. The story is about decline and fall, about George Amerson Miniver, the young brat, lavished with all the luxuries his parents could afford, finally getting his comeuppance. And as if that shame were not enough, everyone in the town is only too delighted to see his fall from grace. But if things couldn't get any worse, they did. Wells never got to see his version of the film again. No one did. All we have left is the 88-minute version. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. And watching it is like encountering a shimmering in the twilight, a silhouette you recognise, but once you go to identify it, it loses its form, and all you're left with is the memory of what might have been. Because Amberson's is now nothing more than a ghost, a glimmer of promise but genius lost. Superbly mounted sequences such as the ball that involve long, sinuous camera movements and then shots that crane up through the staircase offer hints of yet more grandeur elsewhere. But they are truncated and not developed because the tissue that connects the emotional DNA of the scene that underpin the theme that in turn justify the bravura storytelling they are missing. The film jerks and stalls and grinds to an ignominious and near laughable ending that seems to deliberately mock Wells's efforts. Here is Robert Wise, who edited both Citizen Kane and Amberson's, and in absentia of Wells, oversaw the filming of new scenes. I, th- I, would, I would have to say this, that I think from a purely artistic point of view, purely that, it was probably a better film in its, in its entirety, looking at it from a film buff standpoint. I suppose, I don't think there's any question of that. But we are faced with the realities of, of the, other, the other part of it. And I, I only have to say this, that I think the fact that the that the film has come down through the years in its own right is somewhat of a minor, if not more than that, classic, means that we didn't really bastardize it completely. Today we are swamped in director's cuts. Fritz Lang's Metropolis, David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia, Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, David Fincher's Alien 3, Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, Zack Snyder's Watchmen, and as each one of those titles were restored, you wonder whether the artistic vision is being finally recognised, or is it merely a cynical marketing ploy on the part of the studio? Yet another battle between creativity and commerce. But the difference is that Amberson's can never be restored to its promised glory, because the footage that had been cut out of the film, as well as the negative of the 132-minute version, was tossed into a furnace and incinerated. Why would anyone burn their financial investment? Yet, from the point of the studio, who had a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, the ousting of Schaefer and the termination of Wells's contract was beneficial. Within a year of the change in management, 
Orkeo's profits increased almost tenfold, leaping from just over $700,000 to just under $7 million. There was no television back in those days, so a film did not have a shelf life beyond its initial release. As far as the studio is concerned, the only function a loss-maker like Amerson's had was the silver that remained in the nitrate-based negative. And to salvage that, you needed to burn the negative. And how unwittingly ironic is that? Citizen Kane had closed on a shot where the much-discussed meaning of Rosebud was finally revealed. It was a sled from Kane's childhood. But that discovery only came the moment the sled was tossed into the furnace and burned. And it is impossible now to watch that ending and not be aware that the same fate befell the magnificent Ambersons. Mm-hmm.